chapter 11, and it's that very well-known verse, uh, verse 6, which I'll read to you. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And this is one of those summarizing verses that you see often in the scripture where the writer pauses to bring together some of the material uh, that's been considered and in a concise way summarizes the teaching and the truth. And this is one of those verses. There's so much in there. The writer, of course, does expand on the theme. This chapter in chapter 11 is that well-known chapter on faith with the uh, Hall of Fame, so-called, or the Heroes of Faith, listed out. But so many principles, really far too many to explore this morning, and this verse in particular, but some others also we will look at. But before we get there, uh, we understand it's taught that faith is essential for all things, actually. Uh, in particular, we want to think about uh, salvation, uh, coming to Christ, new life, obtained only by faith. But the chapter covers uh, deeper issues. For example, in verse 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. That's very profound, actually. And it uh, stands up to all scientific scrutiny. When all is said and done, when all cases are put forward about how we came to be here, there remains the need for faith. Even the unbelieving world system of evolution has its own version of faith. I don't want to expand on this too much, but it simply stands to reason. You don't have to be an astrophysicist or anything like that. A child can understand this. No matter what view you have of creation, of origins, at some point you have to believe it somehow just happened without any rational explanation. And uh, so that's faith. But faith in nothing is really, really contrary to all reason. But faith in a divine, omnipotent designer fits all the data perfectly. And so the statement is here, withstands the test of time. Through faith we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that God made things not out of things that pre-existed. That used to be actually a scientific view, that matter was eternal, but we won't dilate, divert into that. But God created all things out of nothing. And uh, that's not unscientific. That's beyond science. Science can only do so much. Human knowledge can only go so far. And then after that, we have to just simply fall before the divine majesty of the Creator. And that's in that verse. Faith is required. We're to trust that. We're to believe that. And uh, there it is. We can see this objective reality, this literal universe that we live in, is only explained by the God who is behind it. So by faith we see, as it were, the hand behind all things. But in this... Uh, chapter also, uh, before we come more particularly to our verse, we have a number of case studies. So the writer supports his argument by literal cases, case studies, historical persons. 
Uh, so if we're talking about faith, well, let's look at people. Let's look at lives. Let's look at real history. What did it do? What difference did it make? It was faith that transformed the lives of the people that are listed here. Now, I might have got it wrong, so uh, I stand to be corrected, but I think there's 16 uh, individuals named in the chapter. And in addition to those, there are other people alluded to. So, for example, the Israelites crossing the Red Sea were said to have done so through faith. The prophets uh, lived by and through faith. The walls of Jericho were brought down through faith. They're all listed. So this extends to, and others too, the writer tells us. So a number of case studies. But I'm going to look at a couple before we come to our verse. Our verse is verse 6. But uh, we begin in verse 4. So you have Abel. And uh, this is the theme, of course, is faith. Saving faith. That's really what we have in mind. And Abel, as you know, he's referred to there in verse 4, offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. And what's very lovely and beautiful about not only this part of the Scripture, but all of the Scriptures, is its oneness. This is applying what happened in the first days of creation. Figuratively, figuratively speaking, maybe not literally days, but the earliest times. And here we are thousands of years later looking at exactly and precisely the same teaching. Isn't that the beauty and wonder of the scriptures? So that from the time of Abel, Adam and Eve's first sons, the first parents in creation, until the very time, our very day, the same teaching that that which pleased God and what was, was acceptable to God then has been unchanging and is the same. And the church or the outward or professing church or various bodies like to tinker with that fundamental teaching and to dilute it, to make it more palatable. But we needn't do so. Here it is written down very simply for us. So Abel, anyway, um, his offering was accepted because he understood clearly that his sacrifice, as he offered the, first, the firstlings of his flock, the shedding of blood, life, had to be given, which was looking forward to that life of Christ that would be given, the shedding of blood, the paschal lamb. And so, from the earliest times, people understood that our own righteousness was unacceptable. And of course, the scripture tells us that the Lord had respect unto Abel and his offering. But unto Cain, he didn't have respect because Cain offered the first fruits of his own produce, the labor of his own hands, thinking that God would be pleased with him. Well done, Cain. But he had, hadn't brought it with faith. He hadn't trusted in God's method. And uh, so there we have one case study. I don't want to spend too long on these because I want to come more to our verse. But then we have a second case study, and that's Enoch. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. Before his, for before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. So that's uh, important. He pleased God. 
and uh, uh, that's what we see as the way to come to him. So before I look at Enoch a little bit further, there's an implication here, because verse 6 also says, without faith it is impossible to please God. Of Enoch, it said that uh, he had this testimony that he pleased God. So the issue here is about pleasing God. So just a simple point, and it's very plain. God is not pleased with us before we're converted, before we receive of his forgiveness. And that can be uh, an unwelcome message to mankind. The verses are saying that God is not pleased with you. That's hard to take. Cain, obviously, found that offensive. And he was jealous and slew his brother. He couldn't accept it, that his sacrifice was not acceptable. He became enraged. And that's an indication of how offensive, if you like, and we hope it's the offense of the gospel and of this truth, that God is not pleased with us. And before we come to faith, we live under the illusion and delusion, God is probably pleased with me. I'm not such a bad fellow, bad person. I'm a decent living person. I'm sure God is pleased with me. Why wouldn't he be? Of course, we all do sin. We, do, uh, we commit minor sins. But we would think, yes, there's serious crime in the world. And there's war. And there's genocide. And there's deep corruption. And there's depravity. But somehow, that's not us. That's other people. That's not me. But all of that is committed by people just like you and me. And in a greater or lesser measure, we are also tainted by these behaviors and by our very natures. Our deepest roots, if you like, are corrupted. And we are sinners in the sight of God. And part of that uh, sinful state is the delusion. We lie, we're dishonest, maybe not openly, fabricate things. I'm not suggesting we're notorious liars, but the point I'm getting to is that we lie to ourselves. We tell ourselves things that are not true. And that's why we need the scripture to shine its spotlight and its truth into our hearts to disclose what's really there. And this needs to be done, and this is what this passage is telling us. That Enoch pleased God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. What's the inference of that? Does it really matter? Does it really matter? Anyway, that's what people will think. Well, is God really bothered about this? I mean, if he is this transcendent and supreme being, he can't be bothered with little people like us going about our business. What does he care? Because we're his special creation. We were made in his image. We were made for fellowship, union, communion, to glorify him. And we have spoiled that, and we've damaged it and defaced it and proudly uh, run from him and turn from him. And the scripture tells us as much. Psalm 7 verse 11 says, God judgeth the righteous. God is angry with the wicked 
every day. And unfortunately, that includes you and me, before we come to Christ. God is not pleased with us. So that's set the scene just a little bit. So how do we please God? That's the issue, and that's, that's the subject, isn't it? It's what's explained here. It's what we're looking at. And that's the wonder of the Bible, the Christian message from the beginning of time, is that God is not leaving us in this state of rebellion. And that's very wonderful. Let me look quickly at Enoch, actually, before I come. That was the second case study that we'll just briefly consider before we look at our verse, is that uh, Enoch uh, was, uh, had this testimony that he pleased God. And if you look at Enoch, you will find that the Scripture tells us that he walked with God. Genesis 5, 22 and 24. There's only a short passage about Enoch, but in two places it says that Enoch walked with God. That's significant. That tells us in that simple word that he had a relationship with him, that he conformed his life to him, that he believed in him, and that he followed him. And then unusually, he was translated. He was taken up. He didn't have to suffer natural death. And so that's very beautiful. And he pleased God because he had faith, he had trust, and uh, that's helpful to us. So how do we please God then? Come to verse 6. Well, it's stated simply. What we're doing this morning is not complex. It's very plain. There are big themes, simple to understand, and that should be helpful to us. But without faith, it is impossible to please God. So we need faith. That's fundamental. This is nothing new to believing people. But those that don't know the Savior, I, it should be helpful. We trust. What is faith? Why, why is faith so special? What is its quality? What is so unusual and, uh, about it that it alone will bring us to Christ? Well, it's many things, and I won't be able to explain them all. But faith is the statement of your heart. It's the language of the soul. It's your attitude, your stance, your view. It's all in that word faith. It speaks to God. It tells him many things. Faith says to God, I can't please you. I know you're there. I know that you're the, you're the creator of all things, and we'll look at that. We've touched upon it already. But I myself cannot achieve the standard which I ought to have. That standard, which is, by the way, not unreasonable. We were created and able to keep the commandments of God in our first innocent state. There was nothing there to hold us back, to impose we freely, and when I say we, I mean collectively mankind in Adam and Eve, and we in our turn, freely chose to disobey God and continue to do so and to be independent. And with that disobedience comes a whole raft, a whole world of lies. That's what we buy into. 
That's what Adam and Eve bought into. The delusional world of the devil. And that's inevitable once we refuse him, once we go our own way. So faith says, I cannot please you, and I must look to another. That's what faith says. It's an approach. It's an attitude. It's humility. Because faith is saying, I can't do this myself. So pride is gone. Pride which holds us back. That's why faith is so essential. Faith is an acknowledgement of what's being said in the scripture here, that God created all things. He is the supreme God. We are but finite creatures, limited, small. And faith acknowledges that. Not to have faith, it refuses to believe that. Unbelief says there is no God. We don't need him. We can do as we like. You see, that's the opposite of faith. And that's why faith is key and essential. True faith in the right object also. So it's acknowledging who he is and who we are. Faith is confessing and submitting. We often just use the word faith. You must have faith. But hopefully we've expanded it a little bit. And we haven't done justice to it. Books can be written on what faith itself is. But I hope that those few things will uh, lighten it for us just a little bit. But note now, without faith it is impossible to to please God. Like I said, a simple verse. There's no debate. It's not, well, without faith it's going to be very difficult for you. Without faith there are other ways. They will require a certain amount of dedication and application and learning and experience. No. All other ways to approach God are excluded without a shadow of a doubt by that word impossible. No debate really, is there? So it's essential. And if you seek to achieve it any other way under heaven, to please God, I mean, to have a relationship with him, it is bound to fail. Not only is it bound to fail, it has failed. It it was a non-starter. And uh, you can look at the lives of so many people who have dedicated themselves to religious pursuits, beliefs, practices, but in vain, for nothing. It's futile. Uh, It's self-made. It's man-made. You see, man likes to have faith in a God that he has invented for himself, a God that he can please. Yes, he might set the bar quite high. He might have to stretch himself so that he has to perform certain rituals, uh, be self-disciplined, self-controlled. But alongside that type of human contrived faith will always be that close companion of pride. Pride will be there. You're doing well. You can do this. You're nearly there. God will be pleased with you. And so heed the scripture. Don't spend your time and energy and waste your years when the answer is here. Abandon your own religion, your own efforts, your own endeavors, if you will come to Christ. So it is impossible. Abandon trust in self and uh, abandon uh, this view that there isn't even a God. Who are we? And we do this. When I say we, I mean mankind generally. Who are we 
that we actually remove God himself from his own creation. With the very voices and tongues that he has given us, we use those things to remove him. But anyway, there it is. It's impossible. What about the approach? Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is. So he that cometh to God. Well, every word is significant here. If you will please God, if you will find him, you've got to come to him. Don't just wait, hoping maybe somehow something will happen or not. And you get people like this. It's a kind of fatalism. Well, if it happens, it'll happen. If it's God's will, well, maybe. What can I do? But we will be held responsible. Why didn't you? The Lord will ask on that final day. Didn't you hear the scripture say, come unto me and trust in me? Didn't you hear that? Oh, well, yes, I did, but nothing happened. We're involved. And so he that cometh to God, even that word is important. We must approach him. And uh, we must trust in him. And we must believe in him alone. Not to do so is actually to suppress and to deny every rational and reasonable instinct in our very nature and constitution. And we all know that. We will wake up with a fright and a shock as from a dream. On that final day or when we pass from this life into the next, we will awaken suddenly and acknowledge, of course, of course it was. How could it be otherwise? How could I ever say there was no creator? How could I imagine that I could please a pure and holy and perfect God? But by then, too late, sadly. And so there it is. Without faith, we considered that it is impossible to please him. He that cometh to God must Believe that he is. Well, we thought about that. You must believe that he is. You're not coming to an idea, a vague notion that there's some kind of deity, some force in the cosmos. Maybe, maybe will not help you. People believe that. There are kind of forces, don't they? Energies. Kind of pantheistic view. That if you can just align your own thinking somehow, you will drift into a oneness. That's a deep sleep. That's a dream. And uh, it's not the truth, and it's not the scripture. So you must believe that he is when you come to him. You must know that when you pray, he hears you of a certainty. And you must believe this also. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder. I'm going through this really word by word almost. He is a rewarder of those. He will reward your approach. Now that word reward is a little bit loaded. We think, ah, so I, I will actually receive something that I've earned. I will be applauded and commended and uh, given this gift. Well, it is a gift. But it is a reward also. It's the reward of faith. And it's there. When you come to God, there's no uncertainty. He will not refuse you. Unless your approach is defective, he might hold you back for a while until you've learned, really, that you're sincere 
and serious. That this just isn't a kind of on a trial basis type of faith. That you're ready to give him your life. He will. There's no question. This is what the writer says. He cannot contradict himself. You're not dealing with a politician, dare I say, or anyone. Even your most loved and trusted one can fail you, can let you down. But you're not dealing with a man, a woman. You're dealing with God. And he will keep his promise. And we need to believe that and know that he is a rewarder. We're so fickle and changeable that we expect this behavior even from God. But he's distinct from us and apart from us and above all things. And he cannot lie. And he has promised that he will hear our prayers. And so there it is. He will reward us, not for what we bring. Do you know even the faith that is required, he gives you. Even that faith that we're speaking about, you don't even have that. I don't have it. Even that he gives you. He gives you the currency. It's the gift of faith. How do you receive it? Well, you must approach him. You must ask for it. You must pray to him. And his reward or his gift is priceless. What is it that he's giving us, actually? It's all things. We, we cannot really exaggerate, can you? It's more than we could ever imagine. When we say life eternal, we're so used to hearing terms like that, everlasting life. They're familiar words to us. But they should resonate and humble us into silence that we're being given eternal life which, of course, speaks to everlasting duration, which is in itself absolutely amazing. But it's not only the duration, it's the quality. It's the perfection. It's the cleansing. And all of that is there in that word, forgiveness of sins. That's what he's giving us. Why are you coming to him? What is it that he will give you? Peace. Your debt is cleared. You have no account. Can it be? That uh, all of this will be given to you freely. And uh, understanding and a walk with God as Enoch had. What a precious thing to walk with God. That you're on this earth and that you wandered around, lost for a time. And we did our own thing. And we didn't walk with God. We walked with ourselves. Walked in circles like lost people in a forest, thinking we were okay, but far from home. But then we walk with him. When he's by your side, no matter how difficult the journey, no matter how dark the night, no matter how painful your experiences, when you have your Savior by your side, you walk with him. He walks with you, is the corollary of that. He walks with you. He keeps you, watches over you. All of that is promised there for us. He gives us eternal life, as I said, now and on the other side of the grave. There's a verse here which speaks about that. So verse 16, 
speaking about the patriarchs and others, but now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city, an eternal city, an eternal dwelling place. Then there's a final bit here, or another part. But without faith it is impossible to please him. He that cometh to God must believe that he is, that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. It's all in there, isn't it? Not vaguely, not half-heartedly, but earnestly, sincerely. You're to desire this above all other things. The pearl of great price. We have it there, don't we? That, uh, and, and the person who found the treasure in the field, they sold all, they sold all. Everything else was valueless. To obtain this one thing, the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, a relationship with God, a restored union with our Creator. So there it is, diligently, earnestly, with resolve and commitment, until you find Him. Until you, your prayer is answered. So that's all there. And that's the method. And that's how you come to Christ. But a final section we'll look at before we finish. How can God do this? What authority does he have? Is the test essentially just faith? Well, if I kind of just believe God is there and I come to him, um, somehow, I don't know how, but he, he'll make everything right. You would think so, because he's eternal and infinite. But no, there's more. Even God himself cannot just wipe the slate clean, cannot just change his mind, as it were, as he is holy and perfect and pure and forever condemns sin and wrong and evil and wickedness. He cannot just say, well, we'll give this person another chance. But without a changed nature, we will sin again. And what about our debt, our back catalog of sin? Those offenses which to God are evident at all times. In our memories, they fade away. But God is, sees all things at once. So the grounds of faith, we come empty-handed, we're spiritually dead, we can't offer him anything. It's not just our faith. The faith must have an object. It must be in something. And some of those things we've considered in the goodness of God, in his power, in his sovereignty. But, of course, you know what I'm getting at. It's through Christ through a real person who lived a life that God will accept. He lived a life that was pure, spotless, and sinless. And that righteousness is there for us. But also, he paid the price for sin. He paid our debt in full. And this is in this passage also, prophetically. And it's the last verse we read, verse 28. Uh, speaking about Moses, by, through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. So there it is, the Passover, the prophetic telling that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. Abel slew firstlings of his flock, there was bloodshed. And throughout the Bible, there's been that sacrifice. We read, didn't we, that 
By faith, Abraham was to offer Isaac. There was to be a sacrifice, but that sacrificial animal was provided instead. And this is the same. The only reason that God himself can forgive sins, our sins, is that our Savior paid them for us. They were imputed to him. He was our substitute. And he suffered every pang and every agony. And uh, there it is. And uh, how can we please God? We can't, except by faith. And we have faith in the one that pleased God. In Matthew 3.17, the Lord God, Father, said to God the Son, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So, being pleased with the Son, accepting the Son, He accepts us in the Son also. And this is how we come. And there's a, another verse we could touch on. And this is our journey. Moses did this also, verse 25. Choosing rather to suffer the affliction, suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. So this is through faith also. As you come to Christ, and you leave behind the world, you understand that the pleasures of sin are but for a season. They're passing, they're vain, you will be judged for them. And actually, through faith, you're being offered something infinitely more valuable. Choosing rather to suffer the affliction. Uh, that was more precious. And in verse 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Greater riches. So we draw to conclusion. There's so many case studies there's so much real evidence for the faith. If you think faith is not real, it's delusion, it's just a religious upbringing, uh, it's just a weakness of the mind, it's all these kind of things, look at the case studies. Look at these people who suffered, suffered so much. Giving of life, standing their ground, seeing the unseen, enduring afflictions. And uh, the writer says in chapter 12, the next chapter, verse 1, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. You see, it isn't just me standing up here. And it's not just the passage of Scripture. It's saying, look at the evidence. That was just the few that were picked out. Look at the evidence for faith, for Christian faith, for conversion. It's undeniable. And come to him. Will we end there? Amen. We'll conclude with our final hymn, number 559. Hymn number 559. Sinners Jesus will receive, tell this world, word of grace to all.
soul and every life, and to especially those who have not yet trusted in thee. May they learn how to come with faith. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, the love of God, our Heavenly Father, and the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and remain with each one of us, now and forevermore. Amen.